Are you seriously considering her as a I just candidate? Don't just don't trust her. She's a woman. She's a woman. This is a man's job. She's clearly not educated. Really not she educated. even speak English. That's not me. I'm not like that. You call it an honest mistake. Science calls it a blind spot. Our unconscious mind is a mysterious and powerful thing. It makes 90% of our decisions without us even knowing it. Our brains are overloaded with 11 million pieces of information every second. Yet we can only process about 40 of them. So we're wired to make cognitive shortcuts, using past experiences to make assumptions. And you know what happens when we assume. Our unconscious mind can put us on autopilot, determining where we sit, who we eat lunch with, who we turn to for advice, and who we choose to offer a helping hand. Living our lives with blind spots can put us in a tunnel. Same point of view, same decisions, same outcomes. We can find ourselves trapped in the land of snap judgments and misconceptions. We've all been on both the giving and receiving end of blind spots. Think about it. Who's talented? Who's able? Who can I trust? Who belongs? We've all been there. Blind spots are part of the human condition. Our choices have consequences for us and the people we interact with. By accepting that blind spots exist, we can stop. Imagine what possibilities exist if we could do it all over again. Different perspectives, inclusive relationships, diverse networks, better outcomes, seeing people for who they really are. People like you, unlimited potential we all have blind spots once you accept that you have them you can choose to do something about it it's time to check your blind spots and focus on what's possible I want you to look at these two tables and I want you to look at them very closely. Which of these tables is thinner? Which of these tables is wider? Now, would you believe me if I told you that these two tables are the exact same size? This illusion is called turning the tables and it was invented in 1990 by a cognitive scientist from Stanford University named Robert Shepard. Okay, Shepard's tables. These two tables are the exact same size. Our eyes see the tables accurately. However, when the eye transmits the information to the brain, uh, the visual cortex where depth is perceived, that's where the trouble begins, okay? The incorrect perception that the tables are different sizes it happens effortlessly within the mind because the brain automatically converts the 2D image into how we see it in the natural world. Our mind imposes the third dimension of depth to the tables. And then our brains accept this illusion unquestionably, okay? So much so that even as I have told you that these two tables are the exact same size, your mind still might consider it sheer nonsense, okay? You think I'm crazy. 
Our minds are so good at this that even if you understand the illusion that in fact these two tables are the exact same size, the truth does nothing to change our perception of that reality. The knowledge you have that these two tables are identical does nothing to diminish the illusion itself. Our minds are fascinating. They do this great deal of work unconsciously and automatically. It thinks without us even thinking. Okay, I think you're probably catching on. So let's see if we can do another one here. Okay, check out this checkered square. This checkered board. Squares A and squares B are the exact same color. Do they look like the same color? Okay, why do they look different? How do we see them as different? Now, these two squares are the exact same color. And if we remove everything else and just our squares remain, we can see that they are identical in color. Our mind tricks us. And as with so many so-called illusions, this effect really demonstrates the success rather than the failure of our vision system. The mind is an automatic association-making machine, okay? When it encounters information, words, pictures, or ideas, related information automatically comes to mind, okay? People can't see what they can't see. We have a whole set of assumptions and limitations, prejudice and likes, dislikes and triggers, fears and conflicts of interest, blind spots and obsessions that keep us from seeing what we could and would see if we didn't have them. We are almost always unconscious to these internal obstacles of seeing and understanding, and that makes it even more difficult to address them. We are, you might say, blind to what blinds us. The name for these unconscious internal obstacles is bias. Bias makes us resist and reject messages that we should accept and accept messages that we should resist and reject. Okay? In short, we can't see what we can't see because our biases get in the way. And this is all kind of fun and interesting until we start to think of how it affects us every single day. Every single day, we are processing thousands of bits of information, and bias functions as shortcuts for our brains. If someone looks like us, we're more likely to trust them. If someone dresses like us, we're more likely to trust them. If someone votes like us, we're more likely to trust them. Now, when addressing biases, okay, some of us immediately jump toward prejudice or racism, and that certainly is connected to bias but there are other kinds of bias, okay? Here are a few. We have confirmation bias, okay? We judge new ideas based on the ease with which they fit in with and confirm the only standard we have. Old ideas, old information, trusted authorities. Now, as a result, our framing story, our belief system or paradigm excludes whatever doesn't fit in. We have community bias. It's almost impossible to see what our community doesn't, can't, or won't see. When I don't have intense and sustained personal contact with the other, my prejudice and false assumptions go unchallenged. There's comfort bias, okay? I prefer to not have my comfort disturbed. 
If a new idea or a new person or a new people disrupt my comfort, I will reject that idea, person, or people group. Conservative liberal bias, okay? This one's self-explanatory. There's an election this week. Not sure if you guys knew that, okay? And we're going to talk about this particular bias uh, more in-depthly next Sunday. There's conspiracy bias. That under stress or shame, our brains are attracted to stories that relieve us, exonerate us, or portray us as innocent victims uh, of malicious conspirators. Closely connected to this is complexity bias. Our brains prefer a simple falsehood to a complex truth. Confidence bias. I'm attracted to confidence, even if it's false. We often prefer the bold lie to the hesitant truth. We're unconsciously drawn to confidence. And finally, cash bias. It's hard for me to see something when my way of making a living requires me not to see it. Okay, this was so prevalent during the Civil War that slavery was profitable for white landowners. So they couldn't see or wouldn't see the evil that was right in front of them. Bias. It's interesting, right? Now, as I read through that list of bias, how many of you thought that, wow, everyone who disagrees with me suffers from so many of these bias? Most of us thought how blind our enemies are, but we've got 20-20 vision. And that truth confirms the bias in you, and it confirms the bias in me. So what's the answer? Well, it should be no surprise, but it's Jesus, okay? And we're not gonna have time to explore how Jesus confronts all of these biases. We've got two weeks left in the series, but let's do a few, okay? In, dress, in addressing complexity bias, Jesus briefly, confidently, and repeatedly articulated and repeated his core message in images, metaphors that were disarmingly simple, yet bottomlessly deep. He always saved the complex details until curious people asked for them. He met people at their level, at a simple level, their need for lunch, their need for healing, for acceptance, or for guidance in resolving conflicts, living under oppressive Roman rule, he told simple stories about farming, about losing things, about parenthood, things that everyone would be familiar with. He spoke in simple and repeated simple but powerful statements, images. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is within you. Nobody can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Love one another. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Don't judge and you won't be judged. Do unto others. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Blessed are the meek. Yes, he started simple, but he always enticed people to go beyond simplicity. He met them at the shallow end, but he always tried to lead them to the deep end, to the deep water. What sounded like a slogan or a bumper sticker opened up into bottomless depths, always provoking people to think in a new way, a new way of being, a new way of living. How might we follow his example? In addressing community bias, Jesus created a more free and friendly new community of learners 
and he taught them to accept people where they are and welcome them into the movement. His disciples were a ragtag bunch of diverse first century Palestinian Jews. When his followers made mistakes, which they often did, uh, by judging or excluding other people that the culture was excluding, Jesus corrected them because seekers needed a safe community where questioning conventional bias was not only acceptable, but encouraged. How might we do the same? How can we love people enough to accept them fully right where they are, but love them too much to leave them where they are? How can we inspire people with courage to, you know, differ graciously? How can we challenge people in their social communities without being transformed by them? How can we create a community where questions are okay and those rejected are accepted? How can we demonstrate the love and example of Jesus? Because Jesus is the greatest example of how to overcome bias within us and bias in others. But Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. also modeled this in a great way for us. He says, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We can, not in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. That is the way of Jesus. It was not the arguments of people like Dr. King that broke down some of the walls of prejudice and bias in our country. It was their love. I hope you can see it clearly now. People can't see what they can't see. Bias gets in the way, surrounding us like a high wall, trapping us in ignorance, deception, and illusion. And remember, most of these are unconscious. We don't even know that our brain is doing this. Our brains are busy. They're processing information all the time. So we use shortcuts. Our brain associates, it connects. We are blind to what blinds us. It's as if I'm presented with a new picture that won't fit into my old frame, and so it requires me to build a new one. In wanting to save me from that extra reframing work, my brain presses a reject button or delete button with a new idea that presents itself. I'll stick with my current frame of mind, thank you very much, and it gives me a little jolt of pleasure rewarding me for its quick efficiency. We gotta be aware of our unconscious bias. Okay? So many of us are aware now. We're aware that we have blind spots. We're aware that we have lenses on. So together, let's solve 
this riddle. A man and his son are driving in a car one day. When they get into a fatal accident, the man is killed instantly. The boy is knocked unconscious, but he is still alive. He is rushed to the hospital and will need immediate surgery. The surgeon enters the emergency room, looks at the boy and says, I can't operate on this boy. He is my son. So the question is, how is this possible? Okay, and the answer is simple. The doctor is the boy's mother. Now this riddle has been told for a long time to illustrate how common gender stereotypes are in our culture and in our society. Okay, just look at the words. I can't operate on this boy. He is my son. We are being subconsciously cued into expecting a male. And if you try this riddle out, but you change the gender of the child, if you say, I can't operate on this girl, she is my daughter, which should in theory introduce no additional expectation about the doctor's gender, it will however be easily solved. Or if you make it neutral, I can't operate on this kid, this is my child. No, it would make it easier but we're cued to skewing towards male. 80% did not say that the surgeon was the mother. And the results were no different for an alternate version of this riddle where the mother is killed, a daughter is sent to the hospital, a nurse declines to attend the patient because that girl is my daughter. Very few people, less than 20%, guessed that the nurse might be the child's father. The association, the stereotype, the unconscious bias is this. Surgeon equals male, nurse equals female. And from those who are, from a feminist perspective, those who advocate more for women's rights and equality, they find this riddle particularly annoying because they too associate surgeon equals male. And by the way, when I said the word feminist or someone who advocates for women's rights and equality, did you picture a woman? Okay, could I not be describing a man? Why are you still stereotyping? Why are you still seeing the world as you are? The fact that we know we have lenses on does nothing to take them off. Our brain is constantly looking for more evidence of what it already believes. If you don't manage your mind on purpose, showing your brain contradictory or contrary evidence can only strengthen your belief. It, it makes you believe harder the falsity. If you don't believe in global warming, okay, and then I show you scientific evidence that it exists. If you're not consciously managing your mind, and if you're never willing to be uncomfortable or to be open to your own bias, you will actually become more committed that global warming doesn't exist, even in the face of evidence. You will react to contrary evidence by doubling down on your incorrect belief. Have you seen this play out? Perhaps on social media? Most of us think that we need some new evidence before we believe something new. But our bias forbids that. It tells us otherwise. You literally won't even see evidence that challenges a belief. Or even if you do see it, you'll use that to support your pre-existing belief. You don't think your way into new living you live your way into new thinking. For some of us, we've gotta get rid of the drug of being right, okay? It's toxic, it's killing us. It's also intoxicating. 
Because when we have all the answers, everyone else is wrong. We're in, they're out, we're good, they're bad, we're safe, they're dangerous. This is not the way of Jesus. Jesus isn't on our ideological sides. Now, there is a moment in the life of Christ that illustrates this point really well, okay? It's found in Luke chapter 12. A man approaches Jesus asking for help. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And at that time, it was not uncommon for rabbis to settle disputes among families and villages. But Jesus responded emphatically, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? So here's the question. Why did Jesus reject this man's request for help? Why wouldn't Jesus, who possessed divine wisdom and authority, judge between two brothers? And the answer to these questions, it's important to recognize, is in the form of the man's request. You see, he did not ask Jesus for help dividing the dead father's estate. No, instead he asked Jesus to side with him against his brother. See, in the man's mind, innocence and guilt, it was already established. He was right, his brother was wrong. This man merely wanted to use Jesus as leverage against his brother, and Jesus would have none of it. And I think oftentimes we behave like this man. We employ Jesus as a weapon against those who disagree with us. We essentially declare, well, I think you're wrong, and so does Jesus. But let's call it out for what it is. It's a defensive move that keeps us from having to do the hard work of self-examination, of revealing our own bias. It quickly shuts down the inconvenient possibility that I might be the one in error and that my own perspective might be warped in some way. It also prevents me from sympathizing with my opponent or recognizing any element of truth in his or her position because if God agrees with me, then I never have to change. This is arrogant. This is anti-Jesus. Like the man in our story, we often want Jesus to join our campaign, bless our agenda, and defend our position. But let's remember, Jesus is king, not us. We center our lives around him, not the other way around. Rather, we listen, we learn, and we love. The moment you value winning an argument over a relationship, you have stopped listening, stopped learning, stopped loving. Instead, we must recognize that every person that you ever rub shoulders with is a complex, unique galaxy unto themselves created in the image of God. So we must humble ourselves long enough to resist assuming that you know what they're going to say and why they're going to say it. And we spend instead a few minutes asking them honest questions, believing that you have something to learn. Call this approach to living whatever you want, but Jesus calls it love. We don't have to play the game that everyone else in our culture is playing. We don't have to pick sides. We don't have to fight. We should be different. We should be willing to listen. We should be trying to understand. We should be trying to show sympathy and empathy. And we should be praying for God's blessing upon the people that we disagree with. 
It's not about being right and overpowering the other viewpoint, okay? That's not Jesus. Jesus is always a power under rather than a power over. Picture a young man picking up his prom date. He parks his car, he walks up to the gate, but right when, right when he gets to the gate, there's this big guard dog, okay? This, this huge Rottweiler named Richie, and he starts barking and tries to push you away. Uh, we experience this guard dog's actions all the time in our conversations, anger and defensiveness. And we can handle it in a few ways, okay? We can bark back, okay? You wanna bark at me? I'll bark right back at you, okay? And we feel good for the moment, okay? Uh, our opponent recoils in fear, but you're not going to get very far, okay? You could say, well, I didn't sign up for this. There's barking that's involved. I'm out, okay? I'm going to leave. She can meet me at the prom. Or you can acknowledge that that, that barking, that emotion, that anger is a protective effort to ensure that what threatens doesn't get in. And if you can reassure that Rottweiler named Richie, if you can reassure them that you are not the threat that they think you are, you, you say, I'm, I'm here for the prom, then the emotion and the anger can subside and you can dance the night away. How beautiful it would be that as Christ followers, when someone begins to angrily defend their view, we can see the guard dog barking and our spirit says, ah, I see what's going on here. You don't say it to their face, but you think it. This is a guard dog moment, okay? They think I'm a threat. We can then disarm the volatility of the situation and have a productive conversation. What if we ask the question, how can I reassure you that I'm not the threat that you think I am. We're moving forward in love. Let's dance, not bark. And to dance, we have got to exchange our lenses. We have got to change how we see that we might be able to see others and our world more and more like Jesus. God, we pray that you would reveal the lenses that we wear and that we would exchange them, or begin to take them apart and find lenses that sees the world as you do, that sees people as you do, image bearers of the divine, people to be loved, not enemies to be triumphed over. God, we need your help in this, as it is almost impossible without you. I venture to say it is impossible without you. We need your love. We need your vision. We need your spirit. We need your power. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week is week two of our sermon series, Bias, and we're going to look at the conservative liberal bias. We're voting on Tuesday, and we're going to have a great conversation next Sunday. We hope you have an amazing week. Peace in Ukraine. Oh, my God.